We are back on our Wednesday nights, and uh, we're doing a deep dive on the scripture that we will be doing on Sunday morning. And we are in a series called the Issachar Factor, where we're talking about culture. And uh, hard to believe we've only got two messages left in the series. First Peter chapter three, first Peter chapter three, uh, Robert did a great job of the first seven verses on uh, Sunday, but I'll remind you of where we've been. We started off the series, the Issachar factor, and I sort of launched it with a, a verse out of uh, Colossians, Colossians chapter four, verses two through six. Paul said, devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that God may open a door for our message. So we, we've already talked about that Peter and Paul, I'm not sure they weren't swapping notes in a jail cell in Rome when all this was going on, but because there's a lot of parallels. And, and he says, open the door for our message. And at the same time, Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor saying, let's get this message out. Let's, let's get, and, and then we get to what the message is. So Paul says that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And remember that, that verse, make the most of every opportunity, because we're going to come back around to that in Peter's letter when he says, be ready in season and out to give a word for the hope that is within you. And we'll come back uh, to that in just a few minutes. So in chapter one, we uh, talked about the, the responsibility that we have to the culture. Uh, then we talked about uh, chapter two and chapter four at the same time. So if you're, uh, uh, if you're kind of keeping notes or collecting the whole set of cards, uh, this week, we will finish chapter three. We've already done chapter four. Next week, Brian will finish up the series in chapter five uh, by talking about the future generations, which uh, Peter was talking about here. So let me ask everybody a question. And if you're online, just type in, what, what, what's a word that you think of when you hear the word anger? Why, why are we so angry? That's the topic. Why are we so angry? Is this a new thing? Yes. It is and it isn't. To the extent that it is. Yeah. I mean, America was founded on anger, right? We were angry at the British for taxing us the way they were. And so we started a revolution. And throughout our country's history, we have expressed our anger through uh, warfare or through uh, uh, wars. You know, in, in the history of our country, we think of the uh, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the uh, on into the Civil War, the uh, World War One, the world, the war to end all wars, followed by World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, Afghanistan, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran. So we we have been expressing our emotions. Uh, but there has been some degree of solidarity uh, across America. Not, not always. There, there are groups that are disenfranchised. There are 
are people who who have to make a voice heard because they have been uh, ignored or because they've been marginalized or because they've been uh, ostracized or, or uh, prejudiced against. And so it's it's not a new thing that we have anger. What's new about it? The fact that we don't respect each other. All right. The differences. Uh, the fact that we don't respect each other. I won't have time to go into this on Sunday, so I'm going to shift into professor mode for just a minute. In the earliest times in our country, the prevailing worldview or the, the prevailing thought was superstition, right? We believed in God. We believed that if we did right, he would bless us. If we did wrong, he would curse us. And it was largely a, 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 an ingrained religion that, quite frankly, was based on superstition. Then as we migrated into the 20th century, particularly the, the, uh, the mid-20th century, well, I guess really the 19th and 20th, when the Industrial Revolution brought us modernism. And modernism is the belief that we can make our world better, that, that we as humans, the great enlightenment was what it was called in Europe, that, that we as humans can make our world better. We can strive, we can create, we can build, we can legislate. We humans can make our world better. And we still believe in God, but we just kind of believe he helps us out. We move from modernism to postmodernism, where all of a sudden truth becomes negotiable. We're, we're, we're not superstitious anymore. We, we, we don't really believe that God sits in heaven with a, a handful of lightning bolts. We, we believe in God. We believe that he's there. We, we believe that he's, he's a creator. But by the time we became postmodern, we sort of separated God from humans, right? Let, let God do his thing. Let humans do their thing. We'll ask God to bless us. We'll ask God to comfort us. We'll ask God to help us. But by and large, we're going to try to do it on our own. It's it postmodernism. We do have a comment when you, when you get a chance. All right, go ahead. We got a comment from Rich. All right. Uh, he shares that social media allows for widespread disparagement of others and starts a vicious cycle of defense and counterattack to a wider audience than we would have interacted with before, which is actually what I was kind of going to bring up. Well, we're, we are headed in that direction. Um, Rich, you, uh, did you see the movie The Social Dilemma? It was a movie about the algorithms that run Facebook. And the main algorithm that runs Facebook is anger. If they can figure out what makes you angry, they can figure out how to make you click on links. And so the, the social dilemma was the movie that was made about uh, the sort of the, the artificial intelligence behind uh, social media, but particularly Facebook. And, and they basically said, if we can transact on anger, then we can transact on people's emotions. And Rich uh, tagged in politicians have the same algorithm. I've actually got a quote from a politician. Um, 
politicians said, if you can map an electorate's fears, then you'll turn those into anger by moralizing your opponent's sins. Then they'll show up at the polls. The essence of campaigns today is anger and fear. That's how you win. And so we, it's a great question. Why are we so angry? What is it, what is it that's driving us? And, and part of the answer is that, that our social media is driving us. Our political uh, conversation is driving us. And, and where we think we're reacting to something, they're actually creating it in us. The, 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 the algorithms of Facebook say, let me figure out what makes you angry. Politicians, both parties, let me figure out what makes everybody angry. And that's what we'll camp on. We'll, we'll, we'll offer an immorality argument to whatever our opponent's doing and we'll transact on anger. So, so if we have this particular uh, point of view, we're going to find enough people who agree with us and we'll drum up a, a good mad and, and then we're angry. And now we're emotional. Now we're motivated to do something. And so, uh, but the, the thing is, and, I, and, and we talked about what's changed with anger is that the postmodern landscape was that truth is no longer objective. That truth is whatever we describe it to be. So you, you've heard that about postmodernism, that, that an objective or an absolute truth is no more. And that's odd because that is an absolute truth. You know, but but then we move to what what I call a post-truth culture. So superstition, modernism, postmodernism, post-truth. And post-truth is an extension of postmodernism in that not only do I decide what truth is going to be, most of the time I decide what it's going to be based on emotions. If I can get worked up about something, I'll, I'll, I'll declare that it's truth, whether or not the evidence backs it up. You know, look at... Uh, look at the discourse that's going on, uh, fake news, and and if you watch this news or this news, and and hardly any of it's news. It's just it's who can shout the loudest and gather a crowd, make the crowd mad. But what's really changed about anger is that it's no longer you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and we'll just agree to disagree. Now it's, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. And if you don't agree with my truth, now you're the enemy and I am angry with you all the time. And it doesn't matter if truth is based on evidence. We, we understand that, that truth these days is ginned up through emotions. But now truth, if you don't embrace my truth, you're the enemy. You're on the other team. Uh, I, I am angry with you. I, I, I try not to use the H word, but but I hate you if you don't embrace my truth. And 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 now we we fuel that in the uh, the internet. Uh, one list that I had actually said uh, um, here are three uh, sources of anger. One is partisan anger. We are driven to uh, only associate with people who, um, who are in our crowd. 
And so we we cast blame on the other guy, right? Everything that's wrong is is those people or those people or those people. And so we we gin up a a partisan anger. Uh, the second one is monetized anger, and that's what we were talking about with the political consultants or the social media algorithms. It's I can make money off anger. Hmm? Monetized or mobilized. Monetized I mean I can make money off of it. I can, my, my, anger is an industry. <laughs> if I can create enough anger, I can motivate people to buy something, to uh, legislate something, to uh, vote for something. Monetized or mobilized anger. And then the other one is online anger. And uh, one writer said, what kind of people have we become in the internet age? Thinking back on all of the tweets, page updates, videos, articles, comments, and memes that I've consumed over the last few years, I need to ask myself three questions. Was it worth it? Am I a better person? Have I made the community a better place because of all that consumption? And I, my answer was no. I am not a better person because I consume social media. So the, the partisan anger, monetized anger, online anger. Um, and and when, when we're talking online anger, it becomes a collective because you know what the, the algorithms in social media do is that they they only show you what people who think like you say. So, so it's, it's not like you have a diverse collection of opinions. It's basically an echo chamber. So, so you only hear from your friends. You only hear from the people who think like you. Only hear from people who look like you. Only hear from people who vote like you. And so our anger is further fueled because we don't have to consider another viewpoint. And as long as I don't have to put a face to viewpoint, we, we had a moment in staff pastors meeting this week where we just laughed and laughed and laughed because Brian said, you know, the funny thing about this generation, talking about young adults, they will march in the streets to oppose something they don't like. But if a waiter gets their food order wrong, they won't send it back because they don't like that kind of conflict. <laughs> and he's so right. He's so right that that if we can personalize, then then all of a sudden it's hard to be angry. And that's what Peter's talking about. That's where he's going in chapter three. So he's talked to us in this whole section about the conduct that we have as believers. And last week, I talked a little bit about the, uh, the Roman government and how they were legislating family laws because they understood that if the family breaks down, the society breaks down. And we said last week that part of what Peter was saying about husbands and wives and slaves, it, we, we would call them employees, employers, what he's saying about the workplace and the home the week before, he said, uh, respect the government. He, he's saying all of these things are simply things that Rome is telling us to do. 
why wouldn't we as the church lead the way? Why aren't we leading the way in healthy families? Why aren't we leading the way in men doing what they're supposed to do to lead their families well? Why aren't we leading the way in helping uh, a wife understand honor and uh, responsibility and the, uh, the, the roles within a family? Why aren't we leading the way as the church? And he dives further in that today, but in the chapter two and then early chapter three, he's saying, you're probably going to be persecuted. You're probably going to suffer a little bit for it. And, and he's not talking about physical torture in this. Uh, the, the words that he uses for persecution and insults and uh, when they revile you, they're, they're talking about social uh, exclusion. Uh, they're talking about public insults. Uh, it, it's not until later that Nero started uh, dragging people into the Colosseum and sewing them into animal skins or crucifying them and covering them with tar and setting them on fire to light his garden parties. That wasn't until later, and it certainly didn't reach Asia Minor, where, where Peter is writing. He's, this, this is a long way from Rome. And so he's writing to churches filled with people. And I, I said last week, I believe they were influential people because I, I think they were part of the deportation from Rome where the Roman government tried to set up little Roman cities all over Asia so that they could export the culture, they could export the government, they could export the Roman peace as the Roman Empire grew. So, so I'm not sure these were poor, marginalized people. Certainly he was writing to husbands and wives and slaves and people who vote and people who transact in the community. We, we get that in the tone of the letter. But in chapter three, beginning in verse eight, after he's already talked about husbands and wives and slaves, he picks it up with uh, sort of an all-inclusive word. So chapter three, verse eight, he says, finally, and we all know what finally means when a preacher says it, right? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. In conclusion, finally, as I close, none of that means anything. Still got a lot to say. So he's only halfway through. And he says, finally, but what that word does mean is that he's returning to the central theme of his letter. Okay, he, he's returning to the reason he's writing to them. The part about government and husbands and wives, that, that was a little bit of a sidebar. And now he's kind of returning to the reason that he wrote it, which was your influence in a hostile culture your godly influence in a pagan culture. That's the, the subtitle of the Issachar factor. So he's returning to the theme of, of the letter. And so he says, finally, <laughs> okay, whatever, Peter. Finally, I urge you, um, I'm sorry. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Your, um, your Bible, there, there are five adjectives and no verbs. And, and, and it's like verse eight is a little bit of a standalone because he's reminding us of how we have to treat each other in order to be an influence 
to the community. What you do inside matters to those who are outside looking at it. It's like the, if anybody were to come into this little room or on our little Zoom call here, and they picked up that we really like each other. We respect each other. We hear what we have to say. We we stick around afterwards and we, we pray and we hug and we cry. There are people in our community that would desperately like to be part of that. Sheila, the service on Monday, I had more than one person come to me during the reception and say, I called my son today between what I said and what Steve said. They said, I called my son today. And what they were saying was what I experienced here in this community of faith. I'm looking from the outside at what's going on on the inside. And I want that. I want that closeness. I want that intimacy. And so Peter is saying, okay, just a reminder, folks, that as people on the outside look at what's on the inside, they should see like-mindedness. And, and we've defined that before. It's unity, not uniformity. It's unity, not uniformity. We don't have to look alike. We don't have to talk alike. We don't have to think alike. But we cluster around the gospel, centered around the teaching of the apostles. And... Peter is, is doing something really subtle here. He's starting to depart from Rome tells us we ought to be a good example. Now he's saying, here's what we do not for Rome, but for the sake of the gospel. Here's what we do not for Rome, but for Jesus. So he says, be like-minded, centered around the teaching of the apostles, not the cultural expectation. Don't don't honor each other in the family because you're going to get in trouble if Rome gets mad. Honor people in the family because that's what Jesus taught. That's what the apostles have taught. Cluster around the gospel. So now he says the goal is that the gospel is being spread. And one of the ways the gospel is spread is that the outside looks at the inside and sees it desirable. So he says unity. Then he says sympathy. Word sympathy, caring deeply about the needs of others, being willing to share. Sympathy and empathy, they, 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 they rhyme on purpose. <laughs> The, the, the idea that we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, empathy, and that we can feel deeply over their needs. That if Taylor is hurting, she can see that I'm going to hurt. Nancy's going to hurt. That, that if, if somebody is, is uh, uh, without a job, if they got the we're moving in a different direction speech from their employer, <laughs> then, then there are people that can, that can go... Not just, oh, that's too bad. I'm praying for you. But that there is a deep sense of identification with that emotion. And hang on to the word emotion. We're going to visit it in just a second. Then the third adjective, brotherly love. I'm looking in the uh, English Standard Version. All of you have unity of mind or like-mindedness, 
sympathy, brotherly love. Of course, that that word comes from the word that we get to the city Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, the emphasis in that phrase is on the word love more than it's on the word brotherly. So we're we're talking about uh, uh, brotherly love. But what he's doing here is subtle because you remember he's been talking about the family, right? Here's how wives uh, act. Here's how husbands act. Now he's saying, now treat the church like family. Now, now regard those in the faith family the same way you do in your family. Treat, treat every woman with honor. Treat every man with respect. Treat every, uh, so he said, reopen up the, 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 the things that we said about the household and now regard it as a household of faith. He's saying, because if, if you've got a whole community of people, there was a third century writer, Tertullian, he said, see how those Christians love each other. Just see how they love each other. Acts chapter six, the, the, the distribution of food for the, the widows who were unable to provide for themselves. See how they love each other. That's where Peter is going. If the outside is looking at the inside and what they see is, unity, sympathy, brotherly love. And then he uses the word uh, compassion. Uh, do any of your translations have something different? Mutual kind affection. Kind-hearted. Kind tender-hearted. So he's using a word for heart there that the Greeks would have understood to be the very center of our emotion. So figure out where all of your sadness and all of your euphoria and all of your anger and all of your, what, what was the movie with the, that had the cartoons that were the emotions? Inside Out. Inside Out. Uh, well done. Well played. So the, the, he says this, this, this word heart, uh, it, it actually comes from a word that means the internal organs. So, so everything in you that makes you do what you do, that's the center of emotion. That's the tenderness he's talking about. And then humble, uh, having an honest estimate of yourself. Anybody have a little warning bell that goes off when you see the word humble? In Roman culture, that would have been a weakness. If you you would never want to be humble, you wouldn't ever want to consider someone else as more important than yourself. If you were a master, that's why he had to tell them how to treat slaves well. If you're a husband and and you have absolute command over your family, if you understand the word humility here, you'll understand that his instructions to husbands and wives and slaves even were encouragement and not some kind of a limitation. And so he says this word humble, if you will be humble, and we remember in Philippians where Paul wrote to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard Godness a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of man. It, 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 Paul was saying that humility was at the very center of the mind of Christ. 
And so he gives us these five adjectives as the, the introduction to the rest of what he wants to say. Some of you are going, Alan's never going to finish tonight. That's one verse. Now to verse nine. The assumption of verse eight is laid out there. Okay. People on the outside are looking at us. Do they see like-mindedness, sympathy, tenderheartedness, compassion, humility? Do they see that? And now he says, here's a direct instruction that builds on the word humility, because this goes against everything Rome stood for. Don't ever repay evil with evil. Now, we understand through being on this side of the gospel that humility, the mind of Christ, that he didn't call down the angels to rescue him from the cross. He, he didn't uh, uh, call down the angels to, to protect him from the beatings that he took. He didn't, he didn't revile those. Instead, he said, turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you to, to, to walk a mile, walk another mile. And, and the teachings of Jesus were about do not repay evil for evil. Okay, we're, we're swallowing hard there, all of us, because remember, we're angry. And, and we'd like for the people that are on the other team to get what's coming to them. You know, we, we'd like a healthy dose of that lightning bolt that we imagine. But he says, don't repay evil with evil nor reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, there's a guy that has not been kind to me online. He's one of my former students, and he's mad at me for something I did or said. And I've had a really hard time. I've chosen simply to ignore him, right? And then I read this. And what God's telling me to do is to go online and say nice things about it. That, that I'm not supposed to repay evil with evil. And, and, and I've said, well, I haven't done evil. I haven't said anything about him. I've just gone into ghosting him. I, I, I don't pay any attention to him at all. And God says, that's not good enough, Alan. You, you need to bless him. But you can't lie. But, I mean, he's a human. He... He, he, in his deepest spirit, he loves the Lord. He, he, he's ministering to people. He said some unkind and untrue things about me, but that's okay. I'm not supposed to return evil for evil. I'm supposed to bless him. So I'm going to grit my teeth and bless him. <laughs> now, it, it's not easy what he's asking us to do. Because he's saying you're going to be persecuted you're going to be reviled. And on Sunday, I'll talk about the difference between reaction and response. Reaction and response. It's not that difficult to react. You know, how many of us have ever said, man, I wish I'd have thought of that comeback. I wish I'd have thought of that zinger. I, I, man, that guy said that to me. I wish I'd have thought of that. That's reaction. And the next time, if you do think of it and you happen to say it, that's reaction. That's paying back evil for evil. That's, that's paying back reviling with reviling. 
But if our comeback is to bless, it's a response motivated from the gospel, not a reaction based on our anger. What do we do with our anger? We learn to respond rather than to react. Um, yeah. I was thinking when, when I am angry, when I want to pay back evil for evil, it makes me superior to God. I feel like I'm superior to them without humility. And then when I'm blessing them, I'm not superior. I don't know if you online heard John. He said that when we pay back evil for evil, we, we put ourselves in a place of superiority. And we kind of like it there. We 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 kind of like going. Oh, I was I was gracious enough to forgive him, <laughs> but but if we just bless him without even thinking about forgiveness, if we just bless him, then um, does anybody remember the 18th century philosopher Voltaire? He said, "I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it." Well, our culture today has moved to, I disagree with what you say or stand for, and I will do my best to cancel your ability to say it and maybe even to exist. That's where our anger is driving us. And God is saying, no, bless them, bless them. And that's not easy. Okay. Now there's a hard phrase there. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Scholars are very divided on what that phrase connects to. Does that mean if you bless, you will get a blessing? Or does that mean if you are responding because of the gospel, you'll get a blessing? So, so is it, is it, um, uh, kind of works-based. If if I will bless the guy that reviled me, then then God's going to give me a blessing. The lottery ticket's going to come in, or my skin's going to clear up, or my vision's going to straighten out, or my insurance will go down. Or is he saying, if you will go beyond what is required or expected into extraordinary like-mindedness, sympathy, compassion, empathy, humility, then you are blessed because you are walking in the light of the gospel. You're walking side by side with you. I think that's what it means. I, I think he's, he, and Peter would never say that. But you know, I had a moment. <laughs> I love this. I could just chase all kinds of rabbits. Mm -hmm. I had a moment in here where I remembered Simon Peter's testimony, where I remembered his journey of learning this kind of humility. You remember even after the resurrection, when Jesus said, one day they will tie your hands and take you where you don't want to go, indicating the type of death that he would have. And Peter pointed at John and said, what about him? When, when John, the apostle, describes the resurrection, he says, we ran to the tomb, but I was faster. And I'm thinking about even the disciples and Simon Peter's journey of, of anger in the Garden of Gethsemane, lopping off the ear of the Roman soldier. 
how his his journey of shame as he denied Christ, his 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 journey of of grief as he wept bitterly over the sound of the rooster crowing, uh, indicating that the prophecy that Jesus had was being fulfilled. And I think about his journey, and now here, a decade later, he's writing about humility. He's writing about like-mindedness. He's writing about uh, not paying back evil for evil. And I, what a remarkable journey of discipleship that, that he's had. And, and, I, and I couldn't help but think about that. And then he quotes what probably is one of his two favorite Old Testament scriptures. He loves Isaiah 53 because that talks about the sacrifice of Christ that made the uh, our redemption possible. But he also loved Psalm 34. He's This is the second time he's quoted it. He also quoted it in chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you look at Psalm 34, it's it, taste and see that the Lord is good. And now here he quotes it, but he introduces it with what word? For. So there's a connector here. It, it's not a it's not a henna clause. It's not a in order that, but it's close. It's a it's a connector that says that all of the things that he's been talking to are sort of um, the, the rationale for them is provided in the psalm. So he's quoting Psalm 34 to uh, to sort of ratify what he said in verses eight and nine. So so we almost have to read this backwards. So he says, uh, "Don't repay evil with." Uh, finally, all of you have unity. Don't repay for, and he's given us the Old Testament rationale that supports those two verses. And he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. I wrote a note in my Bible that Psalm 34 must have been Peter's ethical handbook. He sort of draws his ethics as to how to live out the gospel from what is said in Psalm 34. Look what he says. He keeps his tongue from evil. He keeps his lips from speaking deceit. He turns away from evil. He does good. He seeks peace and pursues it. And his ears, his, he does these things and the eyes of the Lord are on him. And because of his righteousness, his ears are open to their prayer. So I'll say this on Sunday. I'll try it out on you. If our anger is in control, we can be right, but we can never be righteous. I can be right. I can be mad at the guy who said things about me online. I can be mad at the uh, driver who was rude to me. I can be mad. I can be angry, and I can be right. He did cut me off. He did uh, uh, tell me that, that, that this item was in inventory, and it wasn't. 
he did tell me he was able to fix something and he was, I could be right, but if my anger, if my sense of entitlement is coming in, I am right, but I am not righteous. What do we do with our anger? What is Peter telling us to do with our anger? Pursue righteousness, not right. Pursue righteousness, not right. Pursue response, not reaction. Pursue respect, not rage. And so he's he's guiding us through this, this, this scripture, and, and he's saying that the ethical code from Psalm 34 is expressed, and, and if we follow those things, we are righteous, whether we're right or not. And being righteous is a lot better than being right, because the Lord hears our prayers. You remember when he said that if a husband doesn't honor his wife, his prayers will be hindered. Something is is standing between that man and God in his prayer life. That, that's the scariest verse I've ever read. I, I know you women don't like the word submission, but man, he's telling me if I don't honor you, my prayers aren't heard. And I'm terrified. And so he he's saying here that, that God hears our prayers when we pursue righteousness whether or not we're right. And then he gets both rhetorical and sarcastic. I know we're not supposed to say that, but listen to what he says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, if I'm reading that letter, I'm going, oh, Pete, there's a lot of people that want to harm me. There's a lot of people that want to speak poorly of me. There's a bunch of people out there who would wish to do me harm because I'm trying to stand up for the right thing. And so it's a little bit rhetorical and it's a little bit sarcastic. So then he he sort of gives us the lesson. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So over in chapter 2, he talked about suffering unrighteously. And in chapter 3, he's talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness. So he talked about slaves with cruel masters who were punishing unjustly, wives with cruel husbands who were who were lording their authority unjustly. And, and so he talked about suffering unrighteously. Now he talks about suffering for righteousness, doing the good thing, doing the right thing, doing the gospel thing, and you still have a pagan culture who comes after you. You still have a cancel culture who comes after you. You still have a, a partisan culture that comes after you. You still have a racial culture that comes after you. You're doing the right thing, but the knuckleheads on the other side of the equation are still coming after you. And so he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, back to your, your organs, right? The, the center of compassion in there, in there, in that place, in that place. Um, I wrote a note that, that I wanted to read. Um, 
while common sense tells people that if they do good, they will be protected from punishment or harm, sense is not so common. Peter was not indicating that if believers behaved well, they would escape persecution and ill treatment. Look back in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Peter offered no guarantees about the pain that any given day might bring. Life is not foolproof. What we do know, what is foolproof, is that he will walk with us through it. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. So now he moves from don't react, respond, to, okay, our witness is both our behavior, but it's also verbal. There's going to be opportunities. Um, I don't, those of you who were not at the funeral, the father of the uh, young man who died took an opportunity to give an extraordinary witness. And, and, and I thought about him when I read this. Always be prepared to make a defense so that anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Our, our testimony, Peter's getting to the reason he wrote this letter, that, that our we're not just trying to stay out of trouble with Rome. We're not just trying to, to behave ourselves and conduct ourselves. We are radically demonstrating what the body of Christ can be. We're radically demonstrating what the family of faith can be. Yes, they will still revile us. Yes, they will still speak poorly of us. But at the end of the day, there's something in them that's going to cry out, I want that. I want that. I want to be part of that. And we, we barely have time to get into the, the what's really going on here. He's going to point to eternity here. He's going to say, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, verse 16, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's plan, than for doing evil. For Christ suffered. We, we point to a crucified Savior. He suffered horribly so that God's plan for the nations could be enacted. So he says, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, here's the part where, Bob, you're going to have to help me out. This is, anybody know the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. All right. Huh? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Savior, who was born, born of a virgin, crucified on the third day. Oh, wait a minute. He descended into hell. All right, that. <laughs> that comes from this right here. That's where they get it. Because the scripture says. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right. Well, see you next week. No. Well, Bob did say that he believes that verse 15 is a key statement in this teaching. Absolutely. In your hearts, uh, Bob said he believes. Are you on mic? Can they hear you? Uh, I can be All right. on mic. Yeah, verse 15 is, is the hinge verse here. But just like he, um, he, he let Psalm 34 be a rationale for verses 8 and 9, now he's pointing to the why of why, why do we suffer? Why do we live godly lives in an ungodly culture? Why would we put up with it? Why don't we just cave in and get along? It, so what if they have several verses of God? So what if they think all roads lead to heaven? Why don't we just get along? Peter says, because eternity is at stake. Now, there's three interpretations of that verse. I don't want to leave Taylor hanging because her mind is blown right now. I did that right there. I never... Yeah. The, the, the Catholic teaching is that Christ descended to hell to preach to the spirits. And, and that's, yeah, yeah, this is, this is where it is. And, and that's not completely out of bounds to think that he did. But what did he preach? To whom did he preach? And when did he go there? Those are the three questions that are kind of hanging out here. And there's one version of it that says that he went to preach to the demons. And we're going, why would he do that? Well, the word preach here is not the word for evangelize. The word, we usually get the word evangelism, evangelion, the, the, the good news. The word that's used here is the word herald, the announcement. So he's announcing his victory in heaven and in hell. What did, what did Paul say in the Christ hymn in, in Philippians chapter 2? That, that every knee will bow of those in heaven and above the earth and beneath the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the herald went somewhere at some time to pronounce that victory had been won on the cross. So if that's what he went to herald, then the timing had to be after the resurrection. So he didn't go to hell between when he was in the tomb. Let me just take a little side trip to hell. There would have been no point. The resurrection hadn't happened. It was, the victory wasn't complete. So my take on it is that after the resurrection, maybe before they found him. I don't know. He resurrected long before the disciples found him. He, he didn't just kind of zoom out when they rolled the rock away. So maybe he resurrected immediately. And, 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 and what we know of the time between the burial and the resurrection, I don't know. 
But what the scripture indicates is that he went to preach to the dead. We know that there is no such thing as post-mortem salvation. So he must have been preaching victory to those who had no hope. God is just. God is just. You, you, you want that guy who cut you off to get what's coming to him? Well, those who do not embrace Christ as Savior, those, and, and so he talks about them. He, he, he gives examples. He said uh, the, the former, they didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There was only eight people who got on the ark. So there was a whole culture of disbelief. What he, he preached to those people. He said, this is what we were talking about when Noah said, let's get on the ark. And all y'all laughed at him. This is what I'm talking about with demons who have been cast out from heaven. This is what I'm talking about with, with those who, who have reviled God. So the herald, he, he didn't preach so that they would come to know him. They already knew he was. They already knew him. He proclaimed the victory that was won when he defeated death. Right now, I, I, I sound awfully authoritative when I say those things because I believe them with all my heart. But other scholars think different things. There are several interpretations of this. I just happen to kind of fall in line with uh, he, the victory wasn't won until death was defeated. So until Jesus was resurrected, the gospel is not complete. Were the disciples saved? Yes, but they were saved with an incomplete gospel. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit visited them to, to seal the victory of the resurrection that their salvation was complete because the resurrection hadn't happened when they began to follow Jesus. And so the, the disciples were sealed by the resurrection. That's one question. Mm -hmm. um, and I know being raised in Episcopalian, and uh, it follows so much of the Roman Catholic um, Church. And I know with this right here, would it have anything to do with the fact that the Roman Catholics feel that you can buy your loved one's souls out of heaven? Yeah. yeah the, that the, part, the, could that be part of one of the. Um, sure. The, sure. The idea that there's. The Mormons, the Mormons actually baptize for the dead. Yeah. Uh, the question is, does, does this generate the idea that some faiths have that we can pray for somebody who's dead, that they would be saved, that we can baptize for somebody that's dead and they would be saved? Yes, it, it probably comes out of here because he's going to talk about baptism uh, and, and the words that he says here. And I, I know I'm late. I'm so sorry. Um, he says that uh, they were the, these eight persons were brought safely through the water. Verse 20. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So there are the, 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 the Mormon faith takes this out of context and and actually they baptize for the dead um and and what he's saying here is that god put people on the boat and he brought them through the waters 
baptism is a symbol where when we are brought through the waters, it's because God did something. We didn't do anything. That's why he said it's, it doesn't just wash the dirt off of you. It's God who did that. God who brought us through the water. Uh, you are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So God brought us through the waters. It doesn't save us. It is, it is a symbol of God's activity. The, the, the people in the ark weren't saved because they floated on the water. They were saved because God put them on the boat. And, and God did that. And so baptism is a symbol of what God did for us, brought us through the waters as a symbol of what he did, bringing us to safety. So he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authority, and powers having been subjected to him. So he closes the loop. He's saying, your anger is wasted. And your anger keeps people from seeing who God really is. And let me tell you why that's important. Because God triumphed over death when Jesus suffering on the cross. You think you're suffering. You're angry because you're suffering. But Jesus suffered on the cross, and he didn't pay back evil for evil. He didn't pay back reviling for reviling. But instead, he was crucified, buried. On the third day, he rose. And that message of resurrection is what we're pointing to, the end of the chapter, verse 22. The resurrection is what he proclaimed when he proclaimed to the demons. The resurrection is what he proclaimed in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's, he's in authority over angels, over powers, over anything. And, and so he, he closes the loop and he says, why are we wasting our time on anger? When we've got a world that needs to hear, be ready in season and out to provide. And the word that in, in that verse to provide a testimony is a legal term. It's to provide witness, to provide a testimony as if in court. Get your thoughts together. Get your act together. Get your story together. Be ready to tell people why you have hope. Why you believe Monday at a funeral that there is not there is life after this life. This life is not all there is. That the saints will gather again. That the pain of this life is severe, but it's temporary. Mm -hmm. Now, 100 years doesn't sound real temporary. But 100 years, you know, Peter will write in Second Peter that for God, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So that's chapter three. Um, we're all done with chapter three and uh, we've already done chapter four. So on Sunday, we'll unpack it a little bit as to how it deals with anger. And Gary has the, uh, unfortunate task of trying to reduce this to 30 minutes.